Do you ever just sit there thinking, why does it seem like there's always a little bit of drama in my life? Or maybe a lot of drama. It could be that you're constantly dealing with other people's problems. It could be your own problems that are always mysteriously there, no matter the job, life circumstance, or relationship you're in. If this resonates or sounds like you, there's a chance you could have something called a drama addiction. Don't know what that is? Good news. Today's guest is a licensed psychologist and expert on drama addiction. He will help you learn how to spot the needless drama in your life and embark on a new, more peaceful way of being. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. This show sits at the intersection of creativity, mental health, self-development, and spirituality. And it's meant to give you tools to help you love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Before we get into it, two announcements. Unleash Your Inner Creative is nominated for a Signal Award. The Signal Awards are huge, and a lot of really big podcasters at big networks are nominated for these awards. And being an indie podcaster, it's a massive deal to be named as a Signal Award nominee. So I need your help. If you like the show and or me, please consider voting for it. It takes like one to two minutes tops. And it's super simple. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. There's also a link in my bio on Instagram. Just click through, vote for Unleash, tell your friends to vote for Unleash. Most importantly, thank you for supporting the show and me because you're the reason that I'm able to do this every week and pursue and achieve my dreams through doing the show. So thank you. Number two, I am doing a free creative workshop and I would love to invite you to attend. So it's going to be this Friday, September 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern. The workshop is called Finding Balance as a Multi-Passionate Creative. It's going to be on daisy.com and also the Daisy app. You can check it out in the show notes. It's also going to be at the link in my bio. You do have to register beforehand, so make sure you do that. And I'd love to have you. Let me help you find balance as a multi-passionate creative genius that I know that you are. Okay, so now to the guest. Today's guest is Dr. Scott Lyons. Scott is a licensed clinical psychologist, doctor of osteopathy, educator, and author of the book, Addicted to Drama, Healing Dependency on Crisis and Chaos in Yourself and Others. He's also the host of the Gently Used Human podcast, obsessed with that name, and the creator of the Embody Lab, which is a hub for embodied education, self-discovery, and somatic healing. He's been featured in places like the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Forbes Women, The Telegraph, and many more. I wanted to have Scott on the show because, number one, he has a fascinating story of how he transitioned from being a professional drag queen into becoming a clinical psychologist. Pretty damn creative. I also wanted to have him on because so many of us are in this cycle where we do have a dependency on crisis and chaos and drama. And it's important to be able to know what it looks like so you can call it out within yourself and others and begin to heal. From today's chat, you'll learn the signs and symptoms of drama addiction, how to start to heal from drama addiction, how to get back into relationship with yourself, find your authentic voice, and much more. Okay, now here he is, Dr. Scott Lyons. I'm so excited to talk to you. There's just so much to unpack. And I mean, I want to get into the drama Get into the drama. I'm obsessed with your podcast title, too. It's so good. Thanks. So good. And I love what you're doing with the Embody Lab. So, I mean, we just we have a lot to get into. And is there anything that I should know prior to our starting here? No, I just I buttoned up my shirt to look more professional for you. And now I'm unbuttoning it. Let it breathe. <laughs> so you know just how professional I really am. <sighs> okay, well, that's kind of where I want to start out because this podcast is about creativity and is about expressing yourself and trusting, loving, and knowing yourself enough to go after what's on your heart. You have an incredible story. You're a former drag queen, now clinical psychologist. So tell me about this journey. Is that not everyone's pathways in life? It's so weird. You know what? You're the first person I've met like that. I want (laughs) to know the story. Well, first of all, back in the day, Before RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, drag paid. I was paying my way through grad school as a drag queen. Wow. And a performer. And I I was already a performer. Like I was a professional dancer and I was directing operas and singing and dancing. You know, I was what could be considered a triple threat had I had more talent. 
I think you had to have some talent. The fact that you were making money doing that. I mean, so few people even make money. I had pizzazz and I had a determination. And I think I didn't take no for an answer often. I think I was at that point in my life, like very social and was good at networking. What I realized early on was like talent only gets you so far, but networking is where it's at. Yeah. Which is also why I left the arts. I was like, I don't want my life to be networking. I want my life to be what I'm impassioned by. And the fact that I felt like I had to go to everyone's shows and schmooze and like sleep with all the critics and whatnot. A little this, little that. (laughs) A little this, little that. So I could then make my art. It felt wrong at the end. And then that is one of the reasons I left. That and I had a stroke. And so I could no longer coordinate my body. I had a severe TIA rather. And I, I couldn't coordinate my body. And it was, I felt a lot of shame because that was my moneymaker. Right. <laughs> that was my skill set that I developed for so long. And I couldn't operate in the same way for some years. And so I had always had other, you know, professions going on at the same time. I had already gotten a degree as a therapist, as a dance movement therapist, osteopathic stuff. Yeah. At that point, I was like, that was the sort of stopping point where I was like, I'm going to completely shift careers. Okay. Wow. I didn't realize that about going through, what did you call the- It's like a mini stroke. They're called TIAs. Mini stroke, TIA. How did you recover from that? Not only physically, but emotionally, because- I think when we do have a certain idea of who we are, there's so much tied up in that, especially I want to get into like kids who perform and how we're all mentally (laughs) ill now. (laughs) But like, how, how did you recover emotionally and physically from that? I was very, very stubborn. For one, I didn't tell anyone about it for almost six months. I was in a relationship at the time. They were out of town. For about five days and during the like it was the first or second day that they were out of town I, I had the incident and by the the time they got back I was functional enough to kind of cover it up to some degree I didn't tell my family I didn't tell anyone I was moving to Berlin like three weeks after this and I didn't want anyone to tell me not to so a lot of the recovery was then on hold because I did as a secret for a long time And like my brain wasn't working, my body wasn't working. And I would just come up with excuses of like, oh, I have a headache or like, I can't get together or, oh, I'm sorry. I just forgot that I have a lot going on. By the time February had happened, there was enough things I just couldn't juggle anymore in terms of the sort of side effects of it. Like was talking to a friend and they asked me how I was and I just lost it. Like, I think I cried for like three hours straight. And luckily, I was surrounded by friends is really a healing opportunity. I then told my family and I told them and, you know, I just I didn't want attention around it either, which is weird because a lot of my life I craved attention. I desired it to be seen. Yeah, I think that that happens with a lot of us, too. You know, you're craving attention. So you've got that going on. But there's also like a polarity where like you're also at the same time afraid if the spotlight ever really does get turned on you, especially for something that could mean that, which of course it didn't, but you felt in that moment, maybe it meant you were damaged or a burden. And that's the last thing you want to feel when you're already going through something hard. Yeah, I had a a show I put up, which I was performing in about six months after that. Someone came and decided to write a review and they just wrote about me the whole time and they about my mediocrity. And I was so devastated because what they were referring to and the the notes they had were consequences of this thing. And because I didn't talk about it publicly and I wasn't going to announce it before a show, but the fact that they had honed in on it and published something on it, it was really a real pinnacle moment where I was like, fuck this. I'm never going to let anyone put me in that position again or comment on my disabilities in a way that I didn't feel like I could be in control of. And it was a real journey. So do you feel like you left drag on your own accord? Or was it like moments like that that pushed you out? Like, do you think you still have a story with drag that needs to be written and ended with you? Well, first, I left drag because my legs hurt and my feet hurt. 
And I was like, you know, it was during my like residency or something at the time. And I was like, I literally cannot stand for five hours because the night before I was doing some crazy ass dance and doing my splits and six and eight inch heels. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a good reason to leave. (laughs) You know, it's funny because my best friend and I and I put it all in storage for like 10 years, everything. And last summer, my friend was like, let's go to your storage and just take everything out and have a wild summer of dress up. And I was like, okay. And we did. And we just had a blast. It's nice in that way. I was like, I didn't shave my legs. I didn't do the three hour makeup job. It was nice to just do it more casually of like, sort of like drag soft, like softcore drag. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's a fun expression. It's wild. It's just an opportunity to do like really creative genesis of like themes and, and genres of textile together and just make people laugh too. Well, and I feel like we need it now more than ever for so many different reasons. And I love that you're now reclaiming it for yourself versus like needing to make a living or proving something. It's like, it's truly just an expression And now that you can come back to it from this healed place, you're actually doing it for the love instead of needing to prove anything. Yeah, it's such a liberation to come back to passions without feeling like that is my only means of survival. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's a journey. (laughs) (laughs) That is a journey. Yeah. Okay, so then tell me, how then did you get to the PhD moment? Like, How did you get on this path that you're on now? When I was in my mid, late 20s, just after that incident, I started applying for PhD programs because I knew I was done. I knew the career I thought I could have for another five or 10 years was done. It was a really easy transition. I was always impassioned by psychology, by mental health, by holistic conceptions of how the mind and body worked. And... Yeah, it, it felt like the really a smooth transition. You know, I missed performing for a little while. I missed creating, but I really got to put that energy into studying and writing an enormous amount of papers. <laughs> Too many papers. I went from writing, you know, musicals about mud wrestling nuns to writing papers on uh, borderline personality disorder and uh, whatever. <laughs> I want to hear the paper about mud wrestling nuns who have borderline personality disorder (laughs) this is what we need this is the hybrid of all your work coming together it's true it's true well if i ever revamp that show i'll let you know it was called mud the mud wrestling musical beautiful it was fun it was wild it was absolutely a crazy show it sounds amazing and so unique do you want to be scott or dr lyons what should i be calling you Beyonce is fine. Beyonce. Okay, so Beyonce. Um, (laughs) Could you imagine? I could. I mean, listen, if it's what you want, it's what you want. You're here. I'm hosting you on my Zoom. I want you to feel comfortable. But I've been like stalking you on socials all day, obviously, prepping for this. You have a great page. and. You know, I also have listened to a bunch of podcasts. I love the one you did with the holistic psychologist, Nicola Perla, and... You talked about in that, you know, some of the early imprinting that you had, how you were told as a kid early on, you'd be lucky if you graduated high school, that your parents were told it's best to not have hope for Scott. And you gave this story of like when you walked down the aisle to get your PhD, that you had this hope, this dream that you would finally be healed and you didn't feel that. No. And so... Could you take us through, because so many of us, I had a similar imprinting when I was little in second grade. I had a teacher that made me feel humiliated in class, like I was dumb. I was like put in the lower level reading. And that really, I mean, I hold it with me still where I recently got an EEG and my doctor was like, oh my God, you're so smart. And I'm like, I am? Like, I just, do you know what I mean? Like, there's still that little piece of you that you carry around that even though you've done all these things and you know you have all these accomplishments, there's still a part of you that's like, what if it's all fake? And what if somebody finds me out? And it was all true what that person said. And so even though you're this incredibly accomplished person, you like got that PhD in your hands, you were still feeling that young boy who was told these terrible things about himself. How did you get through to healing and to know that you are intelligent and incredibly worthy? Ooh, that's a deep question. 
first of all, thank you for like listening to uh, the podcast and asking that. And I'm sorry you had that experience. My heart breaks every time I hear other people share a similar experience that these authority figures in our life, these people who are meant to create frameworks and structures for us to thrive, to grow, are putting things in our way, creating limiting beliefs for us that shouldn't be there. And who the fuck are they? I have always had issues with authority figures and not in a way that I would go like burn down a house or do anything fucking crazy. I always felt this uncomfortable like sense that other people had control over my body, over my mind. And I was not okay with that. Like there was always some sense that said, no, you don't get to decide for me. And I think had I not had that voice that had some issue with authority, I would have listened and internalized it to the degree where I would have collapsed as opposed to being like, you know what, then I'm not going to graduate high school. I'll go get six graduate degrees. And I did. And I'll show that just so that I can become the authority figure and do so much better than you in the world about how to treat human beings. I am an authority figure in a sense, only because there were a bunch of letters after my name and maybe remember some shit from grad school. Being on this end of it, being an adult now, and I look back and I'm like, I would never limit a child. And how much pain that teacher must have been in how much hurt, how much political bullshit that they were enwrapped in in the school system to hurt a child's possible future. So part of it is, you know, a, a level of forgiveness to recognize how much they must have been hurting to do such a disservice to a child. Because we don't know better as kids. We don't know that they're hurting. We don't know that they're just one person that they're not the true authority on who we get to become. And we internalize it. We absorb it like a sponge. And you're right. Even, I mean, I still have days where I'm like, someone calls me from the media and they're like, oh, can we ask you about this? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I know that's supposed to be my specialty, but like, are there people who remember more or like whose brains work better? And you should call, you know, like, it's not so as common as it used to be, but you know, every once in a while when it, it creeps back in, and I think that's a lifelong process that it will be there. I don't know if it will ever go away, but I'm kinder to it. Sometimes when I hear that voice that says like, you're actually pretty dumb and people are going to find out, I just go, it's probably a pretty tough day. I get it. Aww. In the same way, I wish an adult would have treated both of us with more kindness, those adult figures, those teachers. I speak to myself in that way now, to the part that has internalized their voice who said I was dumb, who said I would never amount to anything. That's beautiful. Yeah, and compassion is the antidote to so much. And being able to go back and kind of hold your little one's hand and be like, hey, you're enough. You're going to do great. And your life is possible for you. I love that. Let's shift into this gorgeous book of yours and this philosophy that you've been teaching on so much, drama addiction. Whew. So many of us have this. I'm here to admit I have definitely been one that has been participating in it and been on the other end of it and then probably like revved it up. But how do you define drama and what is an addiction to drama? You know, what's funny is like we all know it, right? If I said to anyone and I do, I ask people all the time randomly on the street. I'm like, hey, do you know anyone who's addicted to drama? They're like, absolutely. And then I go, and what would you define as drama? And it's more of a struggle. It's like, I don't know it through language. I know it through experience. I know it through the like total chaos that they create. I know it through like, all of a sudden, I just feel like the whole world is on fire. Right. I know it viscerally. I feel like grossed out and just like something's not right. So it's an elusive term, even though we all understand it from a very visceral perspective, an addiction and drama. So drama is like the unnecessary turmoil. It's the exaggeration, the intensification. It's the catastrophication. It's whatever it takes to create some level of stimulus in the end that then is disproportionate between the what's needed and the reaction to something. Like it's a disproportionate reaction. Like I pick up a pencil as though it was a 400-pound dumbbell. I blow out a birthday candle with a fire hose. 
it's sprinkling out, so I go into a bomb shelter to get out of the storm. Wow. Those are like, you know, the metaphoric exaggerations, but like, what are the ways in which all of us interrupt our own peace, get in the way of our own stillness, get in the way of our own ability to find quietness? It's not like that's the absolute of life is to find quietness or stillness. But what happens in that process of, of stillness or quietness is we come closer into contact with ourself or closer into contact in a relationship. We're in the sort of sacred pause to which all the information underneath the surface of consciousness is available to us or more of it is available to us, which is also where trauma is stored. Yay. <laughs> Yay. And so if we are stirring the drama to avoid the trauma, I'll say that again, if we are stirring the drama to avoid the trauma, then we stay above that sort of threshold of contact with ourselves, so that we never are that vulnerable. So we're never have to reconnect to the pain that we are, have been so purposefully defending and avoiding and as a way of survival. Oh, Scott, come on. Come on. That's so good. That's wild, though. Between the metaphors and then when you brought up the part about how the drama protects the trauma, I mean, it's pretty earth shattering. Mm. Could you give an example of some sort of drama that may be protecting a deeper level trauma and how that might pop up in someone's life? Easy. We do things all the time. We take a bubble bath. We're in a garden. We're like in a meditation class or a yoga class. And all of a sudden we're like thinking about an ex or we start thinking about a grocery list we have to do. I mean, it, it can be on any level. I mean, have you ever just been like kind of sitting and all of a sudden you found yourself thinking about an argument with a friend that hasn't even happened? Have I ever? Yeah. That's called Tuesday for me, Scott. That's called Tuesday. <laughs> I love that. What we think about, we have a physiological response to. We are revving ourselves up physiologically by thinking or projecting or creating a story. Our body thinks it's real. Have we ever overscheduled ourselves? Have we ever been like going to bed and decided to watch a very overstimulated TV show right before we go to bed? Yes. <laughs> or a violent movie or whatever it is. Like, what are the ways in which we rev ourselves out of ourselves? out of contact with ourselves. And I say quietness, stillness, peace, because that's the first level of what's happening. But what happens with that is that we come closer to ourselves. I feel a little bit bad about myself. So I go on the internet and I start comparing myself to more people. I exaggerate my own feeling by pouring fuel on that fire by comparing myself. Uh, have you ever done this? Like I'm having kind of a sad day and then I go maybe even going through a little breakup, and I go listen to an Adele song. And all of a sudden, that feeling of sadness, which was at like a four, is now at an eight. Why would I pour fuel on my own emotional fire? Mm. What is the value of that? And there is a value. The value of that for all of these things, it doesn't matter whether you're thinking about a grocery list instead of breathing deeper in yoga, or you're overscheduling yourself, or you're creating a fight in your head, or remembering a fight you had with an ex, or talking shitty to yourself, whatever it is, it all has the same physiological response, which is a stress response. And what happens in a stress response, or the first part of a stress response, because there are several elements of a stress response, but the first thing that happens is called activation. It's a release of energy so that you can adapt and do whatever you need. A ball is flying at your head. There's a release of energy. You feel tension in your muscles because they're ready to go. You feel like a little flush of energy. You feel like some heat. All of that's like, okay, cool. We're releasing energy so you can navigate the situation. What also happens in that is some release of some hormones that essentially give you pain relief and makes you more numb. Whoa. Are you a runner? Not anymore, but I used to be. Do you remember the runner's high? Oh, yeah. Oh, so good. So fucking good. So the runner's high is you're stressing your body out. It releases a natural hormone. The high is also a pain relief. So the same action, physiological action, happens in any stress response. And so like 
What do you do if you're full of pain? If you're baseline, if, if you have trauma rumbling inside of you, many of us have had trauma and disassociated, disconnected from ourselves. We have essentially self-abandoned for preservation. And we know that isolation and abandonment of any sort causes physiological pain. When someone breaks up with you, do you feel it? Yeah, you fucking do. When you break up with yourself, you also feel it. Oh. And how do we mask that pain? Well, there's two ways to do it physiologically. One, we either find more connection. It's a pain reliever. Connection, bonding, love is a natural pain reliever. The other one is stress. We create stress to create a natural pain reliever in our body, a natural numbing agent. So if we don't have access to bonding and connection, what is also free and available that we can seek and create at any time? Drama. Wow. That was all so profound. I want to read the transcript back of that like 900 times <laughs> so I can fully observe it. But at a baseline, do all of us have this? Like, are all of us doing some sort of drama seeking in some way? Or are there some people out there who are just healthy? Well, let me go back and answer your, your earlier question about what is a drama addiction? Because I said what's drama. An addiction, there are certain qualifying factors to make something an addiction. You have to have it like a tolerance level. You have to build up a certain level of tolerance. You have to have withdrawal symptoms from something. There has to be social consequences. There's a few others, but those are like the main ones. You know, back in the day, it just used to be like an illness, a disease just happened in the brain and people get attached to some, basically some drug. And it was just because they were diseased. Now, what we've actually come to understand through more compassionate research and deeper research is that essentially any addiction has a core cause, which is that it is filling a void avoid in ourselves. Like when I said we disconnect, like if we have early trauma, we disconnect from ourselves, we dissociate, we kind of get fuzzy, we take a vacation from ourselves. And in the absence, we create a void. And so in that longing for our full self, we fill it with something else. And we become dependent on that. We fill it with drugs, we fill it with sex, we fill it with gambling, we fill it with stress, anything that can keep us out of the sense of the wound, the festering wound to where we should be more whole. And that is what an addiction is at its core. We can get fancy and talk about some of the biochemical pieces of it, but they all have the core wound. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Wow. So in this case, would the opposite of drama addiction be connection to self and presence with self and pain and all the good and hard parts of life? Absolutely. It is a system to which we are navigating a deep pain that is present. And we can all relate to that. What in our lives have we wanted or needed to avoid? So many of us, all of us have done it at some point of like, ooh, the pain of this breakup or the pain of that death or the pain of a failure. And what do we do? Maybe we go drink or we go gamble or we go joyriding. Is it that far off to think that we might go create a distraction of chaos to keep our focus and our attention off of ourself to where the pain is? It makes perfect sense. What sort of environment growing up can lend to this drama addiction? Where do you typically see this? Yeah, you see it in two major environments. One where there's already a lot of chaos. And chaos is the currency of love, where you have to be loud enough and speak and act and behave at a decibel loud enough to be heard. And then you shift to another environment. You take that perception of how loud and how big and how exaggerated and intense you need to be in order to survive into all these other environments. And people might go, why are you so big? Why are you so sensitive? Why are you overperforming? But that is exactly how they needed to be in their home environment to survive. We also see it in you know these early environments, not only where the, it's chaos, but also just where there's pain and where there's trauma and where there's not enough resources of time, space, permission, support, love, comfort, safety to process. 
and they become flooded, they become overwhelmed. And so if there's not enough room for their feeling, there's not enough room for them in themselves. Yeah, because, you know, in going through a lot of this stuff, I'm sure it's like very easy, especially if you had one of those environments growing up to want to point the finger and be like, you parents, you did this to me. (laughs) And I do think accountability is important. But how do we hold someone accountable while not blaming them and recognizing that at this point, it's ours to heal? Yeah, I could spend all my time going, oh, I come from a long lineage of drama addicts. I was just following what was modeled but I'm still enacting it. So it's not going to change by me focusing on them. It's only going to change by me focusing on me. In focusing on me, I may come up or come against some of the pain of interaction with them, but it's still mine. I am re-empowering myself by focusing on me and not on them. I continue the trend of disempowerment by focusing on them. Mm. That's so powerful. How do we start to get back in touch with ourselves? If we are currently divorced from or broken up with ourselves, how do we get back into relationship? Yeah, I love somatics for this because it is at the heart of what it is. It's in somatics, the soma means body. Somatics is essentially the techniques of experiencing the body as a living process, as an emergent experience. It's the difference between saying like, okay, We know our body often in pain, but do we know it in joy? Do we know it in sadness? Like we go, oh, my heart's broken. Literally, I feel like some ache here. And so we know it on this like high decibel extreme scenario. But like, you know, even as you're listening right now to my voice, like if you shift your awareness back into you, just even kind of notice, is there any texture? And sometimes there's imagery like color or sometimes memory or sensation or movement, like an impulse of movement, because this is our primal language. This is the language of how we experience the world first, is through sensation. And it has like texture and shape and color. And that might sound weird, but like go eat something really delicious and notice how your body responds. Go have a breakup and notice how your body responds. If you need more of the extreme scenarios to check in, Or just start to come in contact. What happens when you place your hands on your stomach? What happens when you place your hands on somewhere that kind of aches? What happens next? There are a lot of different ways. Maybe it's even just like, okay, it's hard to feel myself because I'm not used to it. What happens when I just bring my attention to the chair underneath me and the weight of my body on that chair? Can I allow that to happen? Can I allow it a little more, a little more weight to release into this chair? Oh. Yeah, I guess I did. And then we start to build a sort of what's called somatic confidence. It's like, oh, I am my body. And there's this whole language of experience that's really rich. And again, what's interesting is the place in which trauma is stored is on this body level to where the language is not this verbal language like English or Russian or German or Spanish. It's the language of sensation. Mm. And it's interesting in addiction to drama that we are sensation seeking. We are seeking so much sensation to feel alive again, to rise above the threshold of numbness that occurs as a result of having any pain. When you fall down, let's say on a bike, there's a scratch or possibly a broken bone, and then there's an inflammatory response. You have inflammation that It's like a bubble around it that protects it. It's literally a pooling of fluid to protect it. And part of what happens in that pooling is it locks that area off so you feel less. And that happens to us in trauma. We numb out as a form of protection and the pain that resides underneath that numbness. And so like I, as a kid, used to describe myself to my parents as a walking ghost. I wanted to know why I was dead. Poor little Scott. (laughs) I want to go give him a hug. (laughs) Yeah, me too. He is so sweet. And I used to describe this to my parents as like, I don't know, there's something wrong with me. I I knew I had headaches all the time, but like, I also, I would tell them I don't feel dimensional. I feel flat. And I, I had these instances of moments, these flashes of moments as a kid, and I remember them really clearly, where it's like, 
I would feel dimensional just for a split second. And I remember even as a teenager, I was like, I want that. I want this sense of dimensionality. I don't know what the fuck it is. And then when I started studying somatics, I was like, oh, this is what it is. This is what I've been chasing my entire childhood is actually me feeling the fullness of me that I had to rob myself of as a form of protection. Scott, you just dropped so many gems. I don't know where to start. (laughs) The first thing I was thinking when you started talking about this is like how beautiful this is a combination of everything you do. You know, it's like your world started out or like at least this interview started out with you being a performer and using your body and using dance to express yourself. Then you went down this more academic path, but then you found a way to merge the two. So the healing that you were intuitively getting from performing was the movement of the body and using your body and being in touch with your body. And now you've brought that to this really important psychological work you're doing. And I just think it's such a beautiful combination of all your creativity and all that you are. So yay. Oh, I realized I just to go back for a moment that I I didn't finish the idea. So the numbness that exists. So being a walking ghost, what it does to you after some time is it basically signals you shouldn't exist. You don't have any meaning and purpose if you can't feel yourself in this world. And certainly no self-confidence if there's no sense of self. And so I would sensation seek. I would go get into fights with my sister. I would go get into fights with my friends. I would go gossip. I would go do roller derby. I don't know. I would do crazy shit to build up enough sensation to rise above the threshold of numbness to feel alive. And it felt intoxicating. To be in the drama signaled to me that I was alive. And I would do anything to not feel like that walking ghost. And we all know it to some degree. We just call it depression or staleness or sadness. And we all sensation seek to some degree to feel more alive in this world. So the steps I got from you, from everything that you just shared, was that first you have to recognize what drama addiction is or if you're creating drama. Next, you have to call it out. Next, dropping below to find out what is going on underneath that drama-seeking behavior. And then you have to use somatics to get back in touch with your body and yourself and that pain. Yeah, you process it, you metabolize what has otherwise been just stagnant in you. You know, after that, there are more phases. There's a whole process of giving up the identity of being a victim. Ooh, Yeah. Please speak to that. (laughs) (laughs) We form an identity around the world we create through our perception. For many of us with an addiction to drama, you hear it in the language we use. Using extreme, like always, never, it's always something. They never have my back. And so this is the world that we create through our perception. And in that world, I'm a victim often. I'm either a victim or I'm the hero. And because I'm the hero, I'm also the victim. And I'm a martyr. But because I'm the martyr, I'm also a victim. You know, whatever it is that the identity we form around who we are in relation to the world we create is really hard to give up, even after we've done the healing. I remember as a, a therapy session where I came in and I said, I'm ready. And the therapist was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm ready to have a funeral for that part of me that is a victim. And she was like, okay. And I was like, I got this. I got this. And I laid down on her floor because I'm cool like that. And I closed my eyes and I proceeded for 45 minutes to lay that part of me to rest. I did a service. I put soil on its grave. I thanked it for what it did. And I said, I'm not there anymore. Like I have a new reality and I'm not going to be a victim in it anymore. I'm going to be a participant. I have power now. And it was such a powerful experience to let that identity, that ego state die. It was imperative for me to move forward because I kept getting stuck, even though like I didn't have the impulse, the need to create drama anymore. I would find myself still in the state of it, 
often because I was like, but I'm a victim. And it kept me from really changing the deeper pattern still. And then the final thing I really recognized was, okay, here I am. I'm kind of this fresh baby self. I don't have this identity of victim anymore. I'm this dimensional human. Okay, now here comes the scary part. I'm going to learn how to be in relation to other people. And I'm going to do it through vulnerability and intimacy as opposed to chaos and crisis. I'm not going to pull people into my tornado of crisis as the safest way I know how to be in relation to someone. I'm not going to stir their world up so that they can be in re- understand where I am in the world. And I'm going to actually go, whoa, I'm going to sort of let myself be open. I'm going to put my drawbridge down in my castle and let people take a few steps towards me and me towards them in this bi-directional energy of vulnerability and intimacy. And I'm going to repattern the idea that intimacy means death. I mean, we all know that person who's like, I don't know why I just keep dating the most terrible human beings. (laughs) And like, why just keep getting in a relationship with people who hurt me or break up with me or leave me? It can't possibly be me, but it is. The common denominator was always me, but I couldn't see that because the idea of intimacy, someone coming close to me meant I would be close to me, which meant I would be in contact with the deep fucking pain that I was trying to avoid. I couldn't let anyone in if I wasn't there. That repatterning of like that both quietness and stillness can be safe, that relationship, intimacy, and vulnerability can be safe, because each of those previously set off an alarm that said danger, danger to your survival. I have a question, Scott, because I definitely relate. Like I, prior to my current relationship, dated a lot of people who struggled with alcohol addiction or just like weren't able to be fully present. I was in like a seven-year relationship with one. Oof. Yeah, crazy. But it was exactly what you said. It was because I never had to be on the hook. If I was with somebody who wasn't available to be there for me and who wasn't, I mean, my therapist recently said to me, she's like, you know, you never brought him up. It was like he wasn't seven years. Well, like I would occasionally, but it was like he wasn't really even a part of my life because I had disconnected to the point where it was like, oh, yeah, that's happening and he's doing bad things. But like basically it was just like a little like sidestep in my life. So I took two years off and did a lot of healing, and now I'm madly in love. Mm. Wait, what's that like? It's so fun. Oh. I thought everyone was lying about love. I was such a cynic, Scott. I would literally, when people would talk about love, I'd be like, oh my God, they're so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and as a relational relationship therapist, I feel really good about saying that to the public. (laughs) Well, no, but you know what I've learned in the last year? We teach what we most need to learn. And who better to teach it than somebody who has been and is going through it? Like, I would much rather learn about relationships from you, someone who I know is in the trenches with me, than someone who's like basically lived like a monk on a hill and never really had any experience. (laughs) Like, that's great for them. But you're actually out here trying. I trust you. Thank you so much for being honest about it, because it's hard to be honest about these things, especially when we're teaching them. I'm excited for you. (laughs) I'm excited for you. I also just get a little high just like in asking that question to people who are madly in love. Yeah. Because it's like their whole like visceral experience. You just lit up. You got giddy. You like haven't grounded back into your seat in the most perfect way. Like I love that. And emotions are contagious. Oh, yeah. You know, we'll get into this a little bit if we want to. Stress is the most contagious. But love and when we bring it up when we evoke it and someone's talking about it from a real embodied place it's extremely contagious so like thank you for that little hit of it oh my pleasure well thank you for doing this with me (laughs) but I did want to ask because I mean I think I still even though I am madly in love and in this relationship I'm still a person and I still have some beliefs around love and it's just recently come up that I still have something in me that believes like ultimately love isn't for me and it's going to get away from me and it's going to fail me. And I just, I don't understand love. Like everyone else out there, they get it and they're good, but I just don't get love. Like I can't have it easily. Yeah. 
And so like sometimes with Timmy, my boyfriend, things will be going really well and we'll be so happy. And then this little thing happens. It's like a slight disappointment. And I have like a full on panic attack. I'm like, I knew it. Like this is proof. Like I'm experiencing all that internally. So it's like, what should I do? (laughs) Well, you're in this interesting phase, right? Which is called awareness. And awareness is a really shitty phase in the phasic process of healing because of this. It's like, I'm doing it and I'm aware of it and I can't stop it. If we look at like in the phases of healing, change is a little later on. Like you're not near change right now. You're in like the deep awareness of how present the pattern is and what else is here that comes up. So it's like, okay, I hear that voice. Whose voice is it? Is it yours? Is it younger? Is it your mom's? Sorry to just jump in like that. No, no, it's fine. (laughs) It's something I've realized recently. It's both my mom's and it's mine from when I was younger and experienced disappointment. I had so much disappointment with love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we don't get to process the feelings of pain, which is is hard, It, it truly is one of the most physiologically distorting and challenging things to do. We were evolutionarily designed to be in bonding. So it is an alarm system in our body that when a bond is broken, that alarm system is pain. It says, hey, 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 no, 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 bonding is important. You need to be bonded to survive. When we don't get to heal it, when we don't get to metabolize and process the ache of that, when there isn't someone to be like, baby, I got you, this pain is real and it isn't you, It is this temporary fluctuating process that lets you know that hurt is here, that a bond has been broken, and it says nothing about your worth and how amazing you are. I got you. If we don't have that, we start to create narratives. We start to create scripts that say, ooh, this hurt keeps happening and no one seems to come to my rescue. It must be I'm the bad person. Or it's happened again. Why? We are so designed to organize our emotions through story that we start to believe the story is the truth as opposed to the emotion. And then we carry the story as a limited belief through our life until we can allow that to dissolve, to be the non-truth that it is, to realize that was just an organizing principle, an organizing container. And if we can dip inside, which is chaos, because emotions are chaotic. They're not linear. They're not organized. They don't make sense in the way that we would like them to. But when we can tolerate being in the chaos of them, we don't need and we don't carry those stories or those limited beliefs anymore. When you were talking, I just remembered, you know, I did breath work for the first time a couple months ago. And I had this image that came up during it. And basically, it said, like some voice said, like, you don't need to like heal anything other than your relationship to love. Like, I mean, obviously there's other things in my life, but like when it comes to relationships, like. It's pretty core. Yeah. (laughs) It was like the thing you need to heal is your relationship to love and what you believe it can be. And so like my kind of plan right now is next time it comes up, because I'm sure it will come up again. For sure. Is to at least just call it out and say, okay, this is what's happening. Yeah, yeah, call out. And then maybe I can like do some sort of getting into my body sort of thing, holding my heart and being like, okay, I'm here. It's okay, I'm here. And then be with my partner because he is there for me and he is different and he has changed the game. Like I literally said to him a couple days ago, I'm like, I know God loves me because I was sent you. Like I didn't think I would get this in my life. So I do have that deep sense of safety, but sometimes I can psych myself out of it. But this was really helpful. Thank you. I'm so glad you get this corrective experience that gets to be the evidence against the narrative you also had to create. Thank you. Me too. I want to ask you this question because I do think it's important given that there's so many people in our audience who, like us, are performers. Oh, There was something going around TikTok a few months ago, and it said something like this. If your family had you perform for them when you were little, you are now mentally ill. (laughs) First of all, fuck you, TikTok. You're not the boss of me. Yeah, we're actually healthy. 
<laughs> but tell me about this. Like, what do you think about that? And like, what does like people who have in the past been performers or are performers now, is there a higher level of drama addiction likelihood there? Yeah. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Period. Yeah. There's a reason I was in the arts. It was a beautiful container for all the things I needed. Uh, it was stressful. It was stimulating. After every show, all we did was talk about how we messed up. And like, we'd be like, no, no, you were great. And I was like, oh, no, it's terrible. And I hated that. And I was like, this is not a culture I want. It, it allows us to be exaggerating like a professional seal of approval to say, yes, you can intensify. You can exaggerate. You can be silly. And you can get applause for it, which is delightful. It's not to say if you're in the arts, you're addicted to drama, because all of us are addicted to drama to some degree. Because if you are on social media, guess what? They are replicating how media works, how social media and media, newspapers included, how they work is they have to get your attention at any cost in order to sell you something. And that's called an attentional economy. And what's interesting about an attentional economy you know, it's really well proven. It's like the hottest commodity on the market is your attention. So we're all competing for your attention. And what we don't necessarily realize in that theory is the mechanism to capture and maintain someone's attention is through a stress response. So we don't live in an attentional economy. We live in a stress economy that replicates the same conditions to a T that creates an addiction to drama in an individual, except now we're replicating it on a mass scale. We are in an endemic of an addiction to drama. We are being force-fed overstimulation constantly. We are all numb. We are all numb to some degree and need more stimulus to feel alive. And those who are marketing know that the same amount of violence and sex and stressful imagery on television 10 years ago is almost tripled now. Why? Because people need more to feel more, to be more attentive. It's not just like, oh, I'm individually addicted to drama. Culturally, we are addicted to drama, and it's not our fault. This is now the circumstances of how the capitalism of attention works, and the consequences of that is replicated through an addiction to drama. So... For those of us that are online and pursuing, trolling. you know, we're trolling. <laughs> no, but for those of us that are online and like, let's say you and me, like we share things on social media, like we're sharing our work on there. How can we be on there and not be completely controlled by the attention economy? Okay. So there's a few things. What is the amount of news you actually need to feel safe or informed in this world? And then stop. You do not need to see a violent incident that happened over and over again as it's shared. There's study that showed those who were at the Boston bombing during the marathon had less PTSD than those who watched the news about it. Because on the news, they kept showing it over and over again every hour. And then they kept doing hook lines, which is like, stay tuned to find out the next thing. And it's not really anything new. But then you watch it again. And you're watching, you're glued to your television, you're glued to your phone, and you're not moving. You're not mobilizing any of that stress response. And so it sticks. It sticks and it gets heavier and compounded. In the same way, you start to disconnect from yourself but it's not your fault. They're pulling you out of you to maintain and capture your attention to sell you things. And I, you know, I, I realize that can sound a little like conspiracy theorist. No, it's true. <laughs> it is like, but we go log on to Instagram or TikTok or whatever you want or the news and check in at five minutes. This is an interesting thing. Check in at five minutes. See if you can actually track five minutes or if you lose a sense of time. It's like a gigantic casino. It is a gigantic casino. Yeah. It's all these splashy things. And it's like, you know, if I participate, I as a poster, let's say, you know, like posting yes. images and stories. If I post something that says like, hmm, I smelled a flower today. 
I'm going to get two likes. If I say, oh, I had this smell of this flower that triggered this memory inside me of my grandma when she used to bake me bread and she used to say I was her perfect little child and I miss her so much. What's going to get more likes? The grandma one. The grandma one. And then I start to go, oh, well, not most of that didn't happen. So I start to create narratives that I know and exaggerations, intensifications of baseline information to get those likes, to get that dopamine hit. So how do you like being on there and being somebody who is sharing things? How do you do it in a way that's healthy for you? I really don't scroll. I'm not willing to put my health in the power of these media sources. Hmm. Well, take back your power. Take back your power. <laughs> Recognize your drama addictions. Get underneath them. Heal somatically. You have this incredible thing. Actually, I'd like to call it out because I think it could help people with their somatic healing. The Embody Lab. Can you just quickly speak to that and share how people can get involved? Yeah, it's an online hub for embodied education, for tra like transformation work. And it is available. We have membership where you can watch these huge, you know, like people, Peter Levine, Gabor Mate, you know, like these like awesome fucking people talk every month live. We also have courses and workshops every month and anyone can participate. You don't have to be a therapist. We believe that the tools for healing should be accessible to all. Beautiful. And you also have the Gently Used Human podcast, which is probably I my do. favorite podcast title I've ever heard. That comes out every week. It will be coming out every week. Yeah, it's been every other week as we ramp up. Yay. Speaking of bringing back the drag queen, it's the humor of the like when I'm my drag queen persona that I get to have in a podcast and still be the quote unquote expert or the authority on their like psychology and wellness and do it in a way that's playful and funny. It's such a delight. You're damn good at it. I listened to a few. I can't wait to dive in more. I being a gently used human myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad to be amongst friends. <laughs> you know, I was uh, writing my second book and originally it was going to be called Gently Used. And we went through this whole process of people like, well, what does gently used mean? Like, I think of like used clothing. Some of my other friends on Fire Island were like, I think of, uh, you know, sex. And, uh, you know, they were a little more graphic than that. And I was like, oh, I just mean like, we're all kind of, in a process of being recycled at times. And like, we've all had these experiences and sometimes it brings wisdom and other times it, it knocks us down. Yeah. We're gently used. We're not these fresh, innocent, totally resilient little beans anymore. But we're also not past being listed on eBay, you know? Like, that's not what I think about. Like, when I see something is gently used on eBay, I'm like, that's a good piece of equipment that I could have. Oh my like, God. it's still something I would want. It was gently used, used with love. Like, other people's imprints are on them. Like you said, it's not like we're fresh out into the world. We're not tabula rasa over here. No. But we're also not worse for the wear. That one and my other favorite one is Sex Talk with My Mom. It's a mom and a son who talk about sex. It's one of my other favorite podcasts. But those are so the two funny. best podcast titles I have ever heard. Scott, I adore you. Thank you for your humor, for your heart, for the great work you're doing in the world. I am so grateful you exist. Thank you for being so amazing. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, Dr. Scott Lyons. For more info on Scott, follow him at Dr. Scott Lyons. Check out the Embody Lab at theembodylab.com. Get his podcast, The Gently Used Human Podcast, wherever you get your pods. And get a copy of his book, Addicted to Drama, wherever good books are found. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode and associate produce it. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Laura Magrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guest at Dr. Scott Lyons so they can share as well. My wish for you this week is you look at yourself and those around you to see where you might be suffering from drama addiction. 
These patterns don't develop overnight, and though the word addiction can seem really intense, the way it shows up can be subtle. I'm really examining this in my own life, and it is astounding. Let me know what you find out from doing your own life slash drama survey, and here's to healing together. It's not easy, but it's worth it. I love you, and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.